cells will eavesdrop on what you're sending your brain. So if you're sending your brain sort of this negative information or positive information, <laughs> your cells tend to pay attention to that, which then can cause a whole chemical reaction, whole cascading then of, of chemicals being dumped either for the good or for the bad in certain instances. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode four, and my guest today is Dr. John Molidor, who is a professor and community assistant dean at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine and past president of the National Speakers Association Board of Directors. Our conversation focuses on how you design your PowerPoint presentation so that it's easier for your audience's brain to process this information. John came to the NSA Ohio chapter in February 2017 and delivered this presentation, which blew me away along with other chapter members. When I first started teaching back in 2000, I was that person who filled the PowerPoint slide with bullet points and words and with no pictures. Over eight years, I've been moving in this direction, just a few words on a slide with a picture. However, the information that John provided about how the brain reacts during a PowerPoint presentation, for me, it was absolutely life-changing. In my upcoming book, Taking the Numb Out of Numbers, Explaining and Presenting Financial Information with Confidence and Clarity, I write about this approach and the impact it will have on your audience. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Dr. John Molidor. Welcome, everybody, and a very special welcome to my guest today, Dr. John Molidor, and he's a very busy guy, and I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to have a conversation with me today on my podcast. You're welcome. Excited to be here. And, I, and I'll say this, I'll, I'll probably say this in the intro, and I'll say this now. Uh, when you came to our chapter of NSA in February of 2017 and did the presentation about the brain and how it works with PowerPoint and, and presentations, I mean, that was the biggest game changer in my professional speaking career. And I was heading in that direction, but man, you just spot on. And, and that'll be the basis of our conversation today. But can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background before we get into the nuances of, of the conversation? Sure. Probably first and foremost, and one that probably qualifies me fairly well, is I'm a professor of psychiatry at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine. I'm the immediate past president of the National Speakers Association. And when I presented last year, then obviously I was president of the National Speakers Association. 
always been interested in the brain, how it works, how people are influenced by different things in their life and how the brain processes that. So I knew during my year of service as the president of NSA, I'd be invited to go to the chapter. So I thought, well, what would chapters and obviously its members want in terms of a presentation? So I thought about it and I decided to hit upon doing a little research in the area of neuroscience. So I looked at about 40 neuroscience principles, chose seven that I think really have stood the test of time and would be applicable to speakers. Because there's a bunch of other principles we could have used that have stood the test of time that I don't think speakers would be like, I don't know that I really care about what's <laughs> in the hippocampus of the brain. And so it was like, could I find um, principles that literally one could walk out of that session and go, you know, I can apply this. And so oh, and you did. <laughs> I, I wanted to make it simple, but I didn't want to dumb it down. I wanted to honor the science. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the sub agenda, if you will, was how could I also help individuals try to figure out what was going on in the minds of the, their audience, whether it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation, whether it was a small group or even large group presentation. And so that's kind of how I started in putting the, the plan together. So you saw and you experienced the result of that session. And I love what you just said. You put it in the mind of the audience and, and what they're experiencing. And, and, and I've been using that as well. It's like when we think about, do you know your audience? I ask people, what, what does that really mean? And they go, well, you know, what profession or what? I said, but we also need to understand how their brain works and, and consumes information and processes it because that'll just help us in our getting our message out. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that I noticed is that a lot of times presenters, speakers, or even in a conversation, a one on one conversation with your partner, you tend to get in your own head. And try to figure out, oh, this is what I want to say. This is what I want to do, how I'm going to organize it. And not so much what's going on in the head of the person that's going to hear or see or feel the information. And one of the things we did discover, and I think it's, it's important, especially in the communication process, is that, so here's, here's probably the, the lay person's way of saying it is that your cells will, cells will eavesdrop on what you're sending your brain. So if you're sending your brain sort of this negative information or positive information, <laughs> your cells tend to pay attention to that, which then can cause a whole chemical reaction, whole cascading then of, of chemicals being dumped either for the good or for the bad in certain instances. So one of the things that we try to tell people when they're communicating or presenting is to a certain extent, get out of your head. Because if you keep sending that message, your brain and body are going to react probably in that same way. How do you get out of your head, though? I mean, we, we, a lot of us, we live in there all the time and sometimes we can't get out of our own way. I know. It's, so <laughs> one of the things is like, 
Like I know if I'm about to present or I know it's an important presentation, again, whether it be to my board, whether it be to a loved one or uh, to a chapter, let's say. One of the things I try to do is set, I'm going to call it a mantra, if you will, before I, I speak, I will mm-hmm. say, I tell myself, all I can really do here is share what I know. That's so much easier for me to go, I'm just going to share versus I hope they like it or when mm-hmm. I'm doing it going, oh, are they getting it? Or, oh, you know, I'm not getting the reaction that I wanted or... Mm-hmm oh, what's going on? And so then if I'm in my head, I, I, can, mess, I can mess up. First of right. all, hey, my job is just to share. So, so when you and I are talking, again, my mantra will be, can I just mm-hmm. share with Peter? And th- mm-hmm. that's all I can do is share. And I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. But in the end, it's like, am I sharing? Am I doing it in a way that, that's real and you know, I'm not judging myself as I'm doing. Wow, that's great advice because um, I've had speakers come up to me because they know my a lot of my audiences are uh, financial professionals, CPAs and accountants, and their body language during their presentation is very much introverted. There's not a whole lot of, of, of <laughs> it's just kind of there. And they're, they get inside their head thinking, oh my God, I'm dying up here. I'm bombing. This is, And then after they're done, everybody comes up and sharing with them how great they were. And so to that point, they're, they're, the speaker's in their head versus I'm here to share. And they'll react as they do. Absolutely. And so we know then from the, the research that's out there on the extroverts and introverts that the extroverts give much more uh, whether it be the body language, the gestures, the laughter, whatever. And so if you judge it on an external basis, you're going to go in one direction. Whereas if uh, your audience or the individual you're talking to is a little bit more introverted, keeping the energy a little bit closer, you can't then compare the two and then draw different conclusions. Like, oh, the introvert, like you just said, oh, they're not liking it. They're not getting it. Not at all. What it really is, is how they will manifest the expression. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's good, great advice not to judge your audiences by what you're getting versus, again, reminding yourself, you're just, you're there to share. Now you need to create a safe environment. That's right. why the mantra I do, I try to create a safe environment. And then I invite people into that environment. And if someone doesn't want to be invited in, that's okay. And I don't have to sit there and and get down on myself or judge myself going, wow, they hate it, or, or, you know, they seem to be resistant. Well, I don't know. All kinds of stuff could be going on in their life. And so, again, for me, why should I expend energy <laughs> trying to figure it out when my job is, is to share and to create that safe environment? Yeah, it's, it's amazing how much we'll focus on the one person that we don't think likes us and forget about the 50 others who do. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I've, that's always been kind of backwards, but you know, we, we, cause we want, I guess to your point, we want to be perfect. We want everybody to like us, but in fact, you don't know if they're going through a divorce, they've had a bad day, they had a flat tire coming into work. You, you just don't know. Exactly. So one of the things too, is that, you know, when we talk about our audiences, you'll hear a term that's out there that from a neuroscience perspective, we don't use anymore. So 
let's take the accountants, let's say, or engineers. They typically are tagged in this way. We say, oh, they're a left-brained audience. (laughs) Or if they're healthcare providers or social workers, oh, they're right brain. You know, it's like, you know, the left brain is this analytical numbers, you know, and with right brain is like, oh, heart and emotion. No. So one thing we would say to presenters or speakers is we don't refer to people anymore as left or right brain. We refer to people being as hemispheric. And so that's, as you might recall, that was the first principle that we talked about because that sets the baseline for the brain is that brains are hemispheric. They have both right hemisphere, left hemisphere, they have both. And then there's also redundancy. So although if I gave you um, a number problem, or an accounting problem, or something that required a lot of detail work, yes, your left hemisphere would light up if we did a functional MRI, but so would a part of your right hemisphere. And so it's amazing the redundancy that's built into the brain. And so if we think, oh, I, can, I should only talk to the left hemisphere, or only talk to the right hemisphere, we would say you're wasting real estate, you're wasting <laughs> opportunities. And Talk to both hemispheres, tell the story, show the emotion, give the data, give the number, because both of them brain processes and actually would like to have both. Maybe it leans more toward one or the other, but doing both actually is a smart move in terms of presenting and communicating. Yeah, I, I, I watch a lot of TED Talks and a lot of that that delivery is the story, whatever, talking about whatever, which connects with, with the right hemisphere. And, and then, but they have to follow it up with the data because it, ha, it has to match. And, and there's a lot of great storytellers out there that are frauds. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who started that company, uh, Theranos. And it's, it's, it's just a fraud. And, and then you get, you know, Enron and all of this. Like I keep saying the data and the emotion have to align itself. If not, don't get caught up in that emotion. Exactly. And the brain actually has sort of a, a mechanism that it detects that when there's, there's a incongruity or a disconnect, and then it doesn't feel right. And another thing we mentioned was that given your audiences today, since in, on either clipped to their belt or in their pocket, they bring out their phone, their smartphone, and they can fact check you on the spot. Yeah. So if you're saying something and it doesn't quite feel right, a lot of people nowadays will sort of serendipitously, you know, take the phone out, stick it underneath the table. You know, we call it smartphone prayer. So, you know, the phone <laughs> comes up, the hand comes together, the head bows and the thumbs start clicking away, you know, and it's like, and they're checking you out. And the moment they get information that goes, you know, this isn't right. I think you're kind of toast as a, uh, as a presenter because it's like, wow, if he didn't tell me or she didn't tell me the truth on that, what about the other stuff? And so, again, I, I love your idea of the congruity, of the consistency between the story and the data. And they go hand in hand. That, I think, not only makes you strong as a presenter, but it becomes very brain friendly. 
And we want our we want our audience's brains to not work as hard so they can grab this information, process it, and then as as John Medina in his book Brain Rule says, that that's stuff that post notes so we remember that and can and can work on it immediately. Exactly. And the one of the principles uh, we we've talked about is this contextual cueing. And so the brain wants to know. It's looking for this consistency. And so as a presenter, uh, we would talk about not only if you're doing in your slide deck, but maybe how you position yourself on, on the stage or floor, whatever you have platform-wise. Is wants this consistency. And where a lot of times I see speakers or presenters, they go, you know, I'm getting bored with it. I think I'll change it up for me. To make it look different. Well, from your audience perspective, well, you've just sort of messed them up. They're kind of going, well, why did he do this? And why is he changing the font or the size? Or why, why is he telling the story now from over here when he probably should be over on this side to tell the story? Right. So the brain likes that consistency and looks for it. And so one of the pieces of advice that we would give presenters is Think about this contextual cueing because you're sort of teaching the audience, hey, when you see this symbol, this is going to happen. Or uh, my font's going to stay the same font and the, the headers are going to be the same font size. And um, you know, right down to I'm going to shadow the text in a certain way. All those, the brain goes, hey, this is pretty cool. And now I can listen to and focus on what the presenter is saying because now you've cued them. When you see this, you're going to get that. As soon as they see it, the brain goes, okay, give it to me. They're receptive to it versus eliminate the distractors. So when you talk about the contextual cueing here, I I have in my notes from your session, you, you say the eyes follow the F pattern. Yeah, so the big capital F, uh, so again, in terms of the, the F pattern, <clears throat> probably because, remember, the, the right hemisphere is going to be kind of more the visual, and so the eyes cross mm. in the back to the brain. So when we do these eye tracking studies, what we found is that the eye tends to look first on the left, Goes right. up and down, and then it starts moving over to the right. So even if I shift a little bit, mm-hmm. so it's going to then look up and down, and then it's going to look over here. So this is where we put text into that space because the eye will go this way and then that way. I see a lot of people now, again, for our purposes. We're a little bit more centered, although I always try to be a little bit off-centered. And if any way, I lean a little bit to my left. Okay. And that's why then in terms of then what's here, there's nothing hopefully distracting unless somebody walks behind (laughs) you right now. And then what will happen is the eye will then follow that person. The other thing the eye does is it looks to read stuff. So I can see behind you the influence yes as that's set up and so the eye then is also always scanning then to say is there any information i need to pay attention to and so whenever you present 
You want to make sure you know what's behind you and that the, it's not going to distract the reader. But this F pattern, mm-hmm. I goes up and down on the left, then it goes over to the top, then in the middle. So I'm always trying to then raise my text a little bit higher and try not to be in the lower part of the slide. Okay. Now, the other reason that's good is when you project, usually you have to look over somebody's head. It's already up there. Again, it's what we would call then just kind of brain friendly. Will make a huge difference when we looked at the amount of time it'd take to read. Not really, but the brain quickly picks up on are you making me work or are you making it easy? And so and, that capital F pattern is pretty cool. And, and just so you, so you, my audience knows, you live this because when you came to present on your Mac, your deck, which most people have it on the bottom with the apps, you had your deck on the, on the left side of your computer. Correct. And I think I asked you the question, is that because of the F pattern? As you explained, and you went, yeah, that's exactly why. Exactly. So again, trying to kind of role model or be consistent and, you know, it's kind of like if I was teaching you something and again, that inconsistency we talked about, Right. if I'm, if I'm teaching it, then if I'm facing the audience, I'm going to put the projector and screen to my right when okay. I can and so that's, again, it's going to be crossing over. Then my rights accessing your right hemisphere as an audience. I'm forcing the eye to look over that way. Mm-hmm. And over. So there's little things that you can do in terms of the setup that we would say more brain friendly. Right. I've always been told that I should always stand on the left side of the screen. Um, because that's where people start. We, that's how we read. We start, we go left to right. And I remember I was at one conference and I couldn't. I, and I had to stand on the right. And, and internally, I was so uncomfortable that it, it just, I, I had this weird feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm getting them all confused or something here. Yeah. Uh, the brain will adjust though. So even within that, you could be on the right, but you'd move a little bit to the left and then a little bit to the right. Um, I had. Uh, presenter talk about they said well you know i I teach yoga and all i do is my staging is i just have them bring out a table and i sit on the table in the middle it's like so how can i do this stuff and it's like well gesture with your left hand for data or facts or numbers gesture with your right hand for maybe the story or the emotion and Mm -hmm. so you can move people from that spot Mm -hmm. because as you know um we often get <laughs> whatever they have uh, in terms of how they design or set up the room. Right, right, right. And and, and in doing this, because we're talking about emotion and stuff, uh, and so people have asked me, how do I put a story? How do I make my data come alive? Because it's just data. And I've always said, well, there has to be something that's causing that data to react. Why that number's being placed. So it's, it's getting behind that data and trying to find out what's that human factor there that caused that data. There's your story. There's your emotion. You could repeat what, you know, again, you probably want to find the research. And what was the research question that they asked? And so... Um, 
So one, one way to do this is you might go, all right, I'm going to go read the original research. What was the hypothesis? What was their thinking? Uh, did they believe that it was going to be this trend or that trend? And then it's like, so here's what they did. And so they gathered this and then, and then they came up. And then, I mean, you're just telling a story in some ways of what they did. Now, if you had a client or someone that took that information and implemented it, and that's another story. So I did this, presented to this, that person took it. You know, they increased their sales by 30% or 33%. And then they took this here and then they actually modified it even more. Now it's kind of the story. And people, we think, you know, one of the principles that we talked about is that we would say the brain loves stories. Mm-hmm. And it's probably because we grew up with the oral tradition. That's how your history, your mores, your uh, behavior, that's how people communicated it because it was a little bit easier for people to remember in a story than it would be in that um, 42% of teenagers, you know, da, 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 you know, and, and it's like, really? You know, versus you tell the story of the young boy trying to become a man and what the trials and tribulations and the success and uh, the wisdom then that they brought to the community. So probably we have a propensity. I won't say that we're hardwired for it, but it's been part of how the brain structure, if you will, has evolved over time is the, the power of story. The I, I, other yeah. thing, well, and the other thing too on the story is that uh, the brain actually places then the parts of the story in different parts of the brain. Hmm. So it's not like you have to go access one piece. You're actually going to access other parts of the brain. And in doing that, the brain actually is more activated. And when you do that, we probably have a higher probability of things being remembered. I, I agree. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think the challenge is when you say the word story, it has a different connotation in people's mind. Like, you know, once upon a time or that versus, you know, you're just narrating what happened. You're just going finding that you're humanizing the event. In exactly. And again, one of the stories I told you guys was the... Uh, you know, the first x-ray. And I called it a love story. And people are like, what is this? I'm like, well, this is the first known x-ray, you know. William Rankin did it, you know. And he asked his wife. So it actually, the x-ray show is a ring on the x-ray. Well, it was his wife's hand. And as you may recall, the x stood for unknown. He didn't even know what it was. So oh, that's right. That X was that mathematical unknown, and he didn't even know, so he called it X-ray. And the love story part was, honey, would you be willing to stick your hand into this machine? I don't know what it does. (laughs) I have no idea. In fact, I'm going to call it an X-ray, but would you be willing to stick your hand in there for me? And she did. And it's like, that sort of started the foundation of all the stuff we're doing now when we can do the... uh, MRIs, the functional MRIs, the PET scans, all this information to look into the brain. 
Yeah, I, <laughs> that is true love to say, I'll put my hand in this unknown thing that I don't know, might take my whole hand off or electrocute me or whatever. Yeah, that I do, I do remember that story now about, about, about the x-ray. And, and you, you, in talking about story, you also, you talk about giving your audience a commercial break. Yeah, so, my, yeah, so the brain, um, everybody's searching for kind of the optimal time to learn. And to a certain extent, we probably have programmed that into people because depending on the, the school curriculum you went through, was it the 50 minute? And then you had 10 minutes to get to your next class or 55 and five. So there's all kinds of different uh, timetables. Is it hour and a half? So we're still learning what that maximum time was. But what we do know is that the brain craves oxygen, it craves stimulation, and if it's not getting it, the brain actually starts to go to a resting spot, if you will. But let's say I'm, I'm putting info, I'm putting out a lot of info. Well, then you've got to give the brain a break so they can process it. So one of the things we do know in terms of learning, if we want to, or if you want to increase your learning, is if you learn something, you take a short nap. If the brain then actually can rest, it processes the information, and then you go back to do it. Most of us, though, especially from uh, university years, it's like, oh, test, let's do the all-nighter, let's just cram, pound. Actually, we would have been much better off studying a little bit, take a nap, study a little bit more, take another nap, and short naps, but it allows the brain to process that information. So that's, um, so in a presentation, <clears throat> what I tried to do, and again, it's probably more a function of what's happening on TV, I'll say commercial TV, Okay, is every eight to 12 minutes, there's a commercial. Mm-hmm. So this is a break, if you will. So you can go to the bathroom, you can get something to drink, you can you know, have a snack, you can rest your eyes, you can zone out. And then the program comes back on and now you have to attend to that information. So partly the brain mechanism, probably also partly because that's how we've trained a generation of learners, us included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might as well just build it into your presentation. So what I did for this one is remember I put something up there and you had to scream out if it was a fact or, and again, we'll be, we'll be PC here, or not a fact. <laughs> so I'll let the audience know it's a fact or crap. <laughs> and that just, I mean, just that, just by saying the crap, it, it also wakes people up. It woke them up. And the other thing, as you might remember, is that each info item that I had was on the brain. It was related to the brain. So they were still learning, although no, there was no pressure then to get the information. It was just like a statement, and then it's item, fact or crap, and then they yell it out. And if you got it right, then you probably your brain probably released a bunch of endorphins going, I'm so smart, I'm so good. (laughs) And then if you didn't, you were like, crap <laughs> you know or and so you it's a way to kind of 
weave into a presentation because most of us like, okay, you have a two-hour presentation. You're going to give them your two hours, but I would suggest break it into modules and then have these little breaks to allow the brain to rest, to process the information. Because as soon as that segment was done, I went to a new principle. Again, contextual cueing, you knew that once I was done with that break, we're back into it. So would, would showing a video related to the subject, would that be considered a, a, a break? Absolutely. So a break, a story, um, even something like, here's, here's a headline that I read in the past week that deals with, and again, depending on your audience, a financial audience, or here's, here's a bonehead mistake that you know, blah, blah, blah made. Again, it's just, it's putting it out there. It just allows the brain to go, oh, okay. I don't have to process all that. He's just giving me some information. Refreshes the brain um, by shouting out. And again, the other principle is brains love oxygen. So again, if you're kind of shouted out, you have to then by nature, then inhale more. You're just kind of oxygenating the brain, which is always a good thing. <laughs> yes, it's always a good thing. Um, and you also talk about, and well, I when I first started this business years ago, and I, I was presenting, I had one of the uh, one of my colleagues at uh, the Ohio Society of CPAs, one of the members who, who did a lot of uh, presentations, said that his wife suggested that he put pictures on his slides, and he goes, "Why? Why do I want to put pictures in my slides?" And um, because they help. And, and remembering, it's it's this nice visual aid that I can see versus all this text. And, and I think that's always a, a challenge. Uh, I, I think almost a, a lot of people who speak at conferences and stuff, we still see a whole lot of data, very little pictures. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so because remember the hemispheres that because the visual, the visual cortex in the back of your brain is a huge, huge amount of real estate. So if you're only just throwing letters at it, again, the, the eye is going to get fatigued, uh, your brain's going to get fatigued, versus if there's an image. Now, you have to make sure the image matches the text. So it's like if I'm talking about the brain, I put up a tractor truck, <laughs> the brain's going to be like, what, what? You know, you took a picture of your kids or your granddaughter's, uh, you know, truck. Uh, so you want to make them congruent because then again, remember you're hitting both hemispheres also, you're hitting both visual, you're hitting the whole visual cortex and it's activating the brain. So that's what you're trying to do. So the, a strong image, you need an image on every single slide. No, but to a certain extent it helps. And so let's say you had four segments that you wanted to cover in your presentation, then I would pick one picture or image that introduced, you know, segment one, same picture, and then I'd say segment two. So the brain starts going, oh, whenever he's showing this, I know I'm going into a new segment. So I love visuals. My thought is make the visual fit with the words. That'd be first. Mm -hmm. And then another cool thing you can do is you can sample a color 
that's in the visual and make the text that same color. So let's say I have a, um, there's a, a dark brown or a, a, a rich black, although black's easy because black's usually the default for text, but maybe right. a, a red or something. I could sample that color and then I make the text the same color. Because now I'm looking at the image, I get it, and the text is the same color. The brain's going, oh, that's pretty cool. He kept it same or he kept it similar. I can pull the color through from the image. So that's another little technique that you can do. That's cool. I forgot about that one. And and, and as you were describing images and stuff, the the thought that came into my, my mind is putting an Excel spreadsheet up on the screen, that is not an image. <laughs> That's yeah, not a picture. So, yeah, so again, you could play with some of the charts. You know, you might say, all right, here, here's, here's, our, here's the standard way. But let's you know, you convert it easily with most of the software, whether it be a PowerPoint or Keynote or Prezi. You basically then, here's what it would look like in a, in a pie chart, or here's what it'd look like. And then you actually can animate sections of it so it's like all right we're gonna we're gonna look at this column and then you you actually pull the column out and you make that massive and then you could bring in an image if you wanted so usually people just slap everything up there or my experience then they put everything up there and then they go as you can see from this chart no they can't so you (laughs) have to direct you have to direct the eye let's go to column mark this and as you move down the column, you'll see the numbers trending. And then you can bring in another slide or a graphic showing the trend lines. So there's, there's a lot of things in PowerPoint and Keynote that most of us don't know exist. And it's actually, it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And you can make them three-dimensional. You can convert them. You can show them in different ways. Um, so I would, again, my suggestion is keep diving in there and just play with it. I mean, that's how I typically have learned some of these things. Or go to YouTube and find the <laughs> tutorial and someone will teach you because they teach you how to pretty much do anything you want in the universe. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I tend to do a lot is I go to YouTube and watch a video versus going to um, Apple and trying to read the text and try to convert that text and apply it because usually I get something wrong in, in, in doing that. Um, I, I just, I, and you mentioned colors. Now, I'm partially colorblind, so I, you know, greens and browns and uh, I, I don't see very well. But color is important in the text. Color is important in the background. Color is important. has a big impact in a presentation, but most of us don't think about the color or the colors yeah, we're so- using. Exactly. So a lot of times you have to be careful because in the different programs, there's a default setting. So I've, I use Keynote. I did PowerPoint for a number of years and then um, I use Keynote now. So what I'm starting to do is create just a blank canvas. And I think of it as designing each slide deck in a certain, or each slide in a certain way in my slide deck. Now you can do the templates so that you can have the standard fonts and you can set that up. But one of the things that we would say, because there is a high degree of color blindness, the white background or a little bit of off-white 
is probably better. Um, <laughs> I keep my slide decks <laughs> and I go back and I look at a sum. Long time ago, I decided that since everybody else was doing white backgrounds, I was going to do black backgrounds and then maybe orange letters. Well, outside wow. of making it look like a Halloween <laughs> year round, I look at it and I go, what was I thinking? Well, I wasn't. I, I was thinking of myself versus the audience. So we would say because of the high degree of colorblindness, a white or off-white background, minimum text. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to use color, I'm going to go to a darker color. So even though you might have a high degree of color blindness for the brown, I could go to a chocolate brown or even a green. That's a, I will I will lean more to making it a darker against the white. Mm-hmm. As you may recall, I'm I'm pretty strong on that. You do a slight shadow to pop the text from its background. Because if you pop the text, it just gives a little bit more of that three-dimensional quality. The brain likes that versus if it sits and it's flat, then that's the other message you're sending. This is flat versus I want it to pop. Now, could you do that on an Excel? Yeah, you got to dig into it. I probably wouldn't because there's too many numbers and it would probably jar. I don't overshadow. I've had people tell me uh, I've, I've done it for um, for illustration purposes. So for some people, it gives them a headache. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> you know, it starts. And again, if you don't have a strong bulb in the projector, it starts to flicker. Yeah, <laughs> people start going, "I can't look at this anymore." So just a slight shadow to offset it. Again, if I have that image, I bring the color through, it matches it up nicely. And then as you also recall, as few words as possible on the text. Right. And I, um, you've seen that experiment. I'm pretty sure I did it with you guys where I show a passage. As long as the first letter and the last letter of the word are correct, the brain will decode it, even though it's spelled wrong. First letter, last letter are correct. So if I said please and I spelled it P-E-A-L-S-E, the brain actually, when it sees it, will go, it's please. So the brain doesn't look at every single letter. It looks and tries to grab the word. If it's not quite, it decodes it, encodes it, and then you go, oh, it's please. So I'm experimenting now. Well, first of all, I don't use the word the, a, an. I don't put any of those in there because the brain will actually put those in. And then I can have fewer words. I'm now experimenting taking verbs out to see if people will put the action verb in on the slide. So, So if I have results show that I may go results are or I would go results and then I give the results because the the audience kind of goes well I know these these results are shown and blah 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 oh so I, and I look, 
I got it in my notes about that, but I, I forgot. As I was preparing, I went, why are you taking verbs out? Why would you take a So that's, that's the newest one since we last talked. I'm playing with it to see, would the audience still get it? And, and again, if the verb's implied, here's the other cool thing. I'm taking the audience member and I'm actually pulling them toward me because now they are an active participant in what's going on. Again, I'm experimenting. Yeah. Oh no, I love that. I, I'm I'm I, that I'm gonna apl- I'm gonna start applying that because the one thing I did take one of the other things I took away uh, from from your presentation is now because uh, um, I remember when I was helping you set up, I went. This is like a two and a half hour presentation. He's got over 300 slides. In it. What the heck? And, and, but it's one idea, text, few words as possible, and an image to relate so you can talk about it. And, and I've come, exactly. I, I was moving in that direction. Uh, you just helped me get there a lot quicker with that. And for a lot of people, especially presenters, what's nice, I think. Many of us go through this progression as presenters, especially as, as professional speakers. Like, oh, what am I going to say? I have this chunk of time. What am I going to say? And I better put it all on the slide because then I'll remember what to say. You know, and it's like, and then we do the proverbial death by bullet point. You know, it's like, I'm going to put everything up here I know, or I'm going to have this massive notes section underneath uh, the slide to help me remember. Well, Choose the right image, a couple key words, your brain will fill in and then you just talk to it. And then I think you're much more present then with the audience. Because <laughs> if you need to sort of move in this direction with the audience, you can. Versus I've seen people get all messed up because they have all these words up there or they have all these notes and then they don't mention part of it. And then they're like, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you this. Well, the audience didn't know you forgot to tell them this. Right. And then now you planted a new seed. What else did you forget to tell us? You know? Yeah. 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 So I, I had somebody ask me, um, should I use note cards during my presentation? And I go, well, are you using PowerPoint? And they went, yes. I said, that's your note card. It's exactly. just up on the screen. And you just make it appealing to the audience's eyes and do all the right things. And you just like you said, just talk. Have a conversation. Have a conversation with the audience. Don't lecture them. Yeah, I like that about the conversation. And again, circling back, that's why I'm trying to play around with this. Leave a verb out to see if the conversation then is actually going to be in their head. Mm -hmm. But I'm drawing them to me because it's like, ooh, because I may say the word. It's just not on my slide, and their brain might be going, "Yep." That's the word I would have used, you know, and then again, okay. it's, this, it's, it's a, kind of a strange way of, um, you get this congruity. Yeah. And you go, wow, I'm, I'm connected, you know, oh, I knew that. And people like that when, the, when their brains go, yeah, I got that. I got it. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you said that last part, that you may not have the, the verb on the, on the screen, on your slide, but you use it. Yeah, I probably should have been. I should have been clear. I know I don't give a presentation where I don't use any verbs anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
That's a good catch on your part, yeah. <laughs> Get up there and just say nouns and adverbs and adjectives. And, and knowing my audience, they would they would go, wait, wait, wait. Why don't you have any verbs? Are, are you against verbs? Did they, did they assault you? Did they insult you? What, what, what's going on? Why don't you like verbs? Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good catch. Good catch, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you also, uh, the sixth principle that you talk about, uh, it's br- your brain loves oxygen. And you've talked about this a number of times, but why is that, in essence, its own principle? So it's its own principle because when we look at the structure of the brain, if you will, we also know that. A brain that does not have oxygen for five minutes is going to cause brain damage. And so what you want to do is keep the brain as oxygenated as possible. Because basically then it's, it's bringing then, well, basically it's just bringing oxygen to the brain and, and the brain needs that oxygen. You starve the brain of oxygen, you have brain damage. Right. So... Again, everything starts to acclimate. The, the body tends to go at rest. Attention tends to drop down. And when you then oxygenate it, then all of a sudden there's going to be, you're getting the richness of the oxygen flooding to the brain. Everything you know functions better in terms of having the rich oxygen. Now, I will say this for myself. I'm not a big fan of... Everybody stand up. And, I, and again, maybe, maybe your accounting office uh, you know, audience is like, okay, everybody, let's, uh, let's face to the right and let's, let's massage the person. You know, thing, you know? Or now, if there's a way for you unobtrusively to weave that in, depending on your audiences. Now, again, if it's a very expressive audience, they probably have no... So if I'm doing something with... Uh, individuals that do cross training or do weight training or do this, I can probably get them up and have them do squats. I can have them. All you're really trying to do is bring blood to the brain. And since if you're sitting in the chairs and the blood is pulling in your rear end, you know, you want to circulate that. You want to, but I try to do it because it fits with my style, different ways to bring in, if you will, oxygen. The factor crap or commercial break, having them you know, yell something out, that's one way. Laughter is another way, because when you laugh, you tend to have to inhale and gulp, if you will. <laughs> so anything that would do that unobtrusively is one way. And depending on your audiences, you can be totally obtrusive. You can just say, everybody up, you know, stretch, do the jumping jack. Uh, that would work. I, if I'm talking about the brain, that's just, I'll figure out a, another way. But that's me. That's yeah. my style. And I want to be congruent with me because if all of a sudden I'm doing some exercise or I'm doing something that doesn't feel congruent, I think the audiences pick up on that. Oh, yeah. Big time. Uh, when 
when I used to teach at the college level and, and if I'm doing an all day workshop, there's times I can tell that, you know, that this is a scheduled break, but it needs to be it happens sooner. And I I'd always tell them we're going to take a break because my teaching philosophy has always been the mind can only uh, absorb as much as the butt can endure. Exactly. Yeah. And so the other little trick that um, you can do is you can embed into your slide. And so, again, let's say you have a slide deck. Let's round it. Say you have a slide deck of 100 slides. Mm-hmm. And you think that slide 25, 50, and 75, those are going to be little breaks. You can actually embed, and it's hidden away, although you put it in a certain place, say the lower right-hand corner, for example, so it would be invisible to the audience, but you know in the lower right-hand corner of your slide. So let's say you get to slide 20 and you go, you know, they need a break. You actually take your cursor, you move it over to that spot in the lower right, you click on it, and then immediately a slide will pop up. It takes you then to another part that says, it's time for a break or it's break time. And uh, it immediately shows up and it shows like you, you plan this perfectly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's actually pretty cool. Another version of that is, let's say you are citing a, a fair amount of data and you've given it in the past and people are like, well, where is that study? You actually can embed that too. And let's say that's lower left. You take the cursor over, and again, it looks like you're just moving the cursor over to a blank part of your slide, but actually, since it's invisible to the eye, you click in that area, and then it immediately shows who the researchers are in the publication of it. So it's, again, may never be asked, but you will look so cool <laughs> if somebody asks, well, you know, where's that research from? And you kind of slide the cursor over, you click, and it goes, bing. Huh. I'm, I'm going to have to try that. I'm going to have to do that, especially when it's time for a break and just by chance and just exactly. being, being able to read the audience and go, man, they need a break. You know, and, and I'm actually, I, I did this once in a, in a class. It was an auditing class. I called it an hour early, so we're done. I said, I'm boring myself. I know what I'm doing to you guys. Yep. So what I did is I created an avatar that then... So the avatar comes up and it's like a mad professor, you know, the hair all kind of. And then I wrote the script, which is again, very simple. You just type in the script, give it a voice. And so basically when Dr. Molitor, don't you think these poor souls need a break? And so it's saying this. And of course, everybody's riveted because it's this animated, you know, avatar saying it's like, give these people a break right now. Like, nice, it just stops. So I go, all right, everybody, let's take a break. I can't, boom. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> okay, so how did you do that? Did you, is that something you can do in Keynote or is that another program that you had to so that, do? Yeah, so that'd be software. So again, I'm not, I don't get anything <laughs> for this. Don't, there's no endorsement, but I use it. It's called Crazy Talk. Crazy Talk. Yeah, crazy Talk. And it's, um, very simple. I think you get like 12 avatars mm-hmm. and then you, you type in the script and then the avatar and the mouth, the eyes, everything moves in sync. You can give it an accent, not accent, speed it up, slow it down so you can play with it. Uh, I would say within 15 minutes, you're up and doing this stuff. Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to... I, actually, I think the iPhone 10 is able to do that because 
a friend of mine from my birthday sent me a picture of their dog and the dog was talking. Exactly. So exactly. So all they're doing is taking that. And then depending on the, uh, uh, there's different types of software. Then you, you draw a line, say around the mouth and then the mouth moves to the words that you've typed or that, that speaks. It speaks. Uh, yeah. Oh. So there's, again, just kind of Google that, you know, simple, inexpensive avatars that you can use. Oh, that's that's fun. I'm as soon as we're done, I'm gonna go hit crazy talk and have some fun this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as as we begin to wrap up, I, I, I want to hit this last principle. But before that, uh, I remember you asked this question to all of us because we were talking about you know patterns and habits and whatever. And you said, how many days does it usually take to start a habit? And the, the perennial answer out that I hear all the time because it's out on the interwebs is 21 days. Right. And you you immediately poo-pooed that and yep. said, <laughs> <laughs> and went, no, if you, if you look at the research, it's actually 66 days. 66 days out of research out of the uh, UK where they studied individuals to see how long it'd take to form a habit. And again, even that research, I think it ranged, and I don't have the numbers exact off the top of my head, but it's like 18 to 250 days. So, I mean, it's incredibly variable. So then I thought, how did this 21 days come into to be? Why is it out there? Why is it so prevalent? So what I think I was able to find, and again, there could even be a source further back, but the one I saw was uh, Maxwell Maltz and uh, Psycho-Cybergenetics talked about he was a surgeon that was working with veterans who had lost a limb in war. And he noticed on average it took about 21 days for them not to have what they would call phantom limb movement. Oh, okay. Well, in some ways, when you think about it, it was 21 days to lose a habit, not get a habit. But somehow the 21 days got into the literature and then everybody started saying it. The other thing is that it's much sexier or has a greater cachet to say, hey, I can change your life if you're willing to give me 21 days <laughs> versus Peter. I can change your life if you're willing to give me 66 days. Now that'd be two months and you know, five days or whatever. Are you? And it's like two months. Holy crap. I don't think so, but 21 days. So that caught on. Then, as you know, it sort of morphed into 28 days, which I've been able to buy. I think it's because that's typically how much insurance companies will pay for. <laughs> rehabilitation <laughs> and then i think once it hit 21 28 they say well let's round it to 30 well for 30 might as well just say it takes a month right so we've seen the 21 to 30 can't find anything out there and then here's the other one i i think it pays to be very skeptical especially in this era where people put stuff out there that are opinion mm. but often presented as fact and I think we have to be very skeptical. We know 
that we can form a drug habit on certain drugs on one after one attempt. We can addict somebody. Wow. So is it going to take 21 days to get somebody addicted? No, some it will, but we know others it could be one. So, and yet, so when I hear stuff like that, I immediately, my brain starts to go, where, how could I disprove? So here's mm-hmm. the other thing I strongly suggest to people. You put in 21 days habit, because that's the key words for that statement. And then you put myth after it. <laughs> or you put false. And then you actually get all the stuff that says it's a myth. And then you read their research and make sure it's good research. But if you just put in it takes 21 days to form a habit, you know you get thousands, if not millions of hits yeah. confirming that. And then what we do is we do crazy things. We perpetuate, oh, I heard Peter say this and I respect Peter and he, he does his homework. So I'm going to say it. And after a while, I no longer give you attribution. I start saying it and then it gets out there. Then I get quoted and probably not a good thing. Exactly. And, and, and But I, I have this in my notes Right next to this principle number seven, the brain looks for patterns. And, and is that the whole thing with the habit? The brain is looking for that pattern in order to create that. So that, that explains why my golf swing is terrible, because I haven't done the pattern, well, one, correctly, and two, consistently. Right. And so the other thing that, <clears throat> and here's the thing. So the brain is always seeking to understand. It always wants to figure stuff out. So when we've given images where there's like total chaos, there's no pattern, the brain actually will try to impose a pattern even when there is no pattern. Okay. And we have to be careful about that because, so the example I gave you guys was I took two random events. They had no connection whatsoever. There was a video and there was an audio. The video had like a sine wave going on. Mm-hmm. And then I did an audio, which I just created on GarageBand. It was okay. had nothing to do with the video. Then when I play both of them, the brain started to impose a pattern. It started to look for a pattern going, well, of course, oh, the symbol hit here. That's why that sound wave on that video went up. And so the brain actually started to make up stuff to try to figure out what was going on. And as you may recall, I also said the probably one segment in the audience that was probably getting disturbed were the musicians because the musicians intuitively knew through habit, pattern, whatever, no, symbols wouldn't make that big spike, you know? That should be just a little sound over here. But for most of us, we imposed a pattern even though there's no pattern there. <laughs> so the summary that I tried to put together is then to say, what are the patterns in your presentation that would then help the audience to actually figure it out? So as you may recall, whenever I gave a principle, it was the same slide. Now it said what the new principle was, but it was the identical slide for all of the patterns. You know, there's a group of people holding a sign. Okay. Right, right. The factor factor crap was sort of a pattern. You knew as soon as factor crap came up, it was like, hey, I can turn my brain off. I don't have to pay attention. Um, 
I had brain facts. And I told you, if you saw this person or it was a male or this person, a female, you were going to get a brain fact. And so that was a way to start laying out patterns because we know the brain is always looking for them. It's similar to that contextual cueing, Mm -hmm. but it's also taking it. So I'm trying to figure out how other ways where maybe I could weave in music or weave in um, graphics. So a hot one out there called cinemagraphs. And a cinemagraph is like a still picture, but one part of it is actually moving. So let's say you have a person sitting at a desk and it's a still photograph, but the fan is moving. Oh, it's like it's looking at it and going, oh, this is a nice still. And all of a sudden the fan moves and you're like, whoa. So what's it doing? It's activating the brain. So now it starts to look for patterns. So that's going to be my newest area that I'm going to be <laughs> figure out, you know, how to weave that in. Uh, yeah, that's, I, that's, that's, that's so a, a pattern. I mean, and I think you talk about this with, with the contextual is you want your fonts the same, you want your placements the same. You, you don't want to use a New Times Roman on three slides and then go to a a, 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 a Comic Sans over here and shifting and 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 even the way you even the way you set up your your slide, that consistency should always be there throughout. Right, okay. and the only time I break it is when I want to make a point because then it's like. It's purposeful rather than I'm getting bored. I think I'll, I'll change it up versus, no, I'm going to change this up because this is the most important point of, of five points or something. Or I really need them to know that one because the other ones then get trumped or get messed up. If you put in this, then I might, I might flip it um, for the contrast effect. So, um, but I'm trying to be much more purposeful rather than oh that looks nice or yeah i you know i always say you want your you want your slides uh, uh appealing to the eyes of your audience but with purpose exactly exactly and the pattern now i'm playing with um uh video and music and imposing too to see um again for those out there uh, Garage Band is part of the keynote uh, suite, if you will. I'm not musically inclined. <laughs> I'm somewhat mathematically inclined. So what I do is I'll lay down tracks that have the same beat, the same tempo. And then I experiment by bringing in different instruments. And then the beauty of that is, since I created it, I own the rights to it. I don't have to pay any royalty to anybody. I don't have to worry about, hey, you use that song. It's like, it was my music that I created. And for my purposes, since it, it didn't need to be great music, <laughs> I just had to sync it with a picture. Um, that worked out well. But there's, that's the sort of stuff that I think as professionals, we need to be tuned into. And again, if I'm creating it, it's mine. Nobody's going to... Right. Uh, and through this whole conversation, it keeps coming back to me, is it's not about you. It's about the audience. And when Absolutely. someone when, when someone says, I don't have time to do that, I went, it's not about you because you use the word I. Yep. 
And, and I, I think a lot of times we we forget as presenters in front of an audience of being in the seat and having that one that whoever's speaking boring us to death and overkill with the slide. But because it's about me, I don't think about the audience. I don't put myself in their shoes. And and, and all this stuff that you've talked about is just absolutely, like I said, it, it's. I'm glad we're talking again because I forgot about some of this stuff that I can go back and, and, and implement. But it, it, it's, it does make a difference to those who are sitting in your audience. Absolutely. And I think the progression of most of us in the profession is that since it is hard to be standing in, in front of an audience or in front of a group, because in essence, you're saying, I'm vulnerable, I'm open. Um, you start to understand why people like to stand behind the podium. It's like there's there's now yeah. something that's protecting you. And then to be out there, you know, in front is to be vulnerable. And so I think when we start, we are in our head. It's like, you know, well, I gotta, I want to do this, or I, I need to do this. Da, da, da. And then again, you ask me, you know, how do I sort of get out of my head? That goes back to the mantra to say, all right, it is in my head. My job is then to create a safe environment invite people in, and then share what I know. That's all I can do. I can't be responsible for someone else's mood. Mm -hmm. I can't be responsible for someone else's learning. But I have to be responsible for setting it up in the easiest brain-friendly way to get feedback. So again, how do we ask for feedback? What I ask people, it's and, and I do this, and people that know me well know I do this all over, in every area, is I ask people what worked well for you, mm -hmm. what would have worked better for you in the future. And so, again, I'm moving them to, the, and again, to hear the feedback, it's much easier for me is what would have worked better for you in the future versus what would have worked better for you, period. Then it's judging, I can't do anything about it in the past. Right. I can do something in the future. So, if I said to you, Peter, what worked well for you, tell me, I go, well, what would work better for you in the future? And you said, you know, I didn't quite get this. I would have liked, you know, if you could, now I can take that and move forward rather than most of us. Oh, he judged me and he didn't like it and he doesn't like me. You know, it's like, right. again, get out of your head, get out of your way versus, hey, that's a good idea. Or <laughs> here's what I like is you may say, you know, that would work better for me in the future, blah, 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 blah. And I may go, yeah. Probably not for me. And that's okay. But then you get your say, I get input, and right. then I can revise for the future. I like that. I like that. Uh, and, and I'm going to actually, this group that I do a lot of work for, I'm going to have them put that in the, their evaluations that they send out because what, what could have been done better today? I, yeah, I'm going to have them get put, what can we do better in the future with this and, and, and see yeah, how those respond. And people are actually, I think, more likely to tell you what would have worked better in the future. Because mm -hmm. they're like, okay, I can project out. And it moves us from, oh, geez, am I going to hurt his feelings if I, you know, if I judge him or her now versus, hey, this would work better. And then you as the recipient can go, you know, I think I'm going to stay with this. You know, like... Um, a crazy one, but uh, as you know, I gave this to a, a bunch of chapters, and, and one chapter said, 
You didn't number your principles. I just said principle and then named it. And so somebody said, would work better for me? It was like, yeah, it was pretty minute font size. So it was like, that one was easy. All right, principle number one. You know, Then all I have to do is remind myself if I move them in order, <laughs> I keep, keep them in the right sequence. But that one's pretty, pretty straightforward. That's cool. Uh, John, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I literally, I could probably talk to you for another three hours on this topic because I, I just completely fascinated by it. And, and, and I'm selfishly, thank you for coming on because now you reminded me some stuff uh, that I had forgotten or I had, uh, hadn't done. So this is like, I can go back to this episode and listen to it, but I'm going, what, what did he say? And, and, and actually, those of you who are listening um, or, or watching this, you might want to go out. Now, I would suggest you go out to the to the website where this episode is on my, on my website and download the full transcript of this conversation so you have it. So if you need to refer to it, that might be another way of doing it. Um, I, I thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate your knowledge, your wisdom, your advice, and taking time out of your schedule to spend some time with me. I'm, I think I'm going to take the rest of the afternoon off. I'm full. Thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you for uh, uh, having me and hosting this. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Hope your audiences get a couple ideas or tips to move forward on their presentations. Oh, there's, there's a lot of tips for them to be had. <laughs> Thanks again, John. You're welcome. I would like to thank John again for sharing his knowledge about how to prepare a PowerPoint presentation that takes your audience's brain into consideration and provides for a richer learning experience. In Episode 5, my guests are Rich Stang and Brad Hoffman, who are partners in the Maryland accounting firm of Delion and Stang. This episode will be available on Monday, June 25th. Thank you for listening and begin the process of changing your mindset and getting out of your comfort zone and develop new skill sets to become a more future-ready CPA. The ability to present financial information in a manner that is engaging and impactful will make you more future-ready. Remember, this process requires daily application with a big dose of applied improvisation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.